You send in your questions, and we're you send in your um, questions, and we're working on that. Nick probably do it. Working on that. Nick probably do it. We received hundreds of questions, like a ton of questions. Why do bad things happen to good people? How do I know God's will for my life? What happened to all the dinosaurs? Should I marry Fred? Do all roads lead to God? How can I forgive my dad? Can I watch the ravens play in heaven? How do I get my husband to put the toilet seat down? Do the pastors ever disagree with each other? We don't have all the answers, but today we will tackle a few of your questions. Why? Because you asked for it. Hey, Mountain. Good to see everybody. Glad you're with us at all of our campuses. This is a series called You Asked For It. And when we came up with this idea, it seemed like such a good idea. (laughs) And I guess it is. We'll see. You guys sent in some amazing questions, and we're doing our best to process through them, and we're going to try to just get through a whole bunch of stuff over the next few weeks. The kids are doing it, uh, Mountain Kids and uh, Collide and Echo. I think they're doing it as well. Uh, with students. We got some great questions from, from, from the kids. Some of them were very, very interesting, uh, kind of head scratchers. One of them was, dear God, what kind of ice cream do you like? It's like, so I'll be, that, Nathan will be answering that shortly. Uh, God, how did you make the Rubik's Cube was another one. Uh, why did I get bit by a dog? And in some ways, you see some of the kids' questions were basically our questions, just with a little bit of a different wording to it. But there's, some, there, there's so many questions so many questions, and there were hundreds that came in uh, from every category you could imagine about, uh, tell me about the end times, or well, how do I help my marriage get better, or uh, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Uh, is there football in heaven? Which I do know the answer to that. The answer is no, because the Bible says there's no weeping or gnashing of teeth in heaven. So, <laughs> Amen, amen. Yeah, yeah, amen to that. Just in case anybody happens to be a Falcons fan. We're going to try to tackle as many as we can. Uh, we're going to try to get through uh, just kind of short answers. Uh, can we just agree to just, let's all just be gentle, humble, chill, treat each other with tenderness and kindness. We're going to probably really not do a very good job at this, but we are going to try to say, well, here's some things about some ways we should look at this. Try to see what God's mind is. Go to the Word of God, always as our basis, and just kind of, we just stay humble. Hold your positions loosely. I hope you get affirmed in some things you already think. I hope that some things that you were wondering about, you're like, yes, I knew, oh good, I feel stronger now. And I hope you get challenged on some things that maybe you've held on to, but you're going to find challenged by the Word of God and the Spirit of God moving in your spirit. And... Uh, After all, we're not really here primarily to get smart. We're not here to throw out a bunch of information so we can all walk out of here all smart and go club someone over the head with all of our intelligence. That's not what this is about. We're really seeking the mind of God. We're seeking to humble ourselves and say, God, is there something that I need to think or know that would give me an ability to live as a follower of you in a, in a better way? Here's a great scripture to kind of guide us through this whole deal. As we look at the scripture here from James chapter 1, verse 5, it says this, If any of you is deficient in wisdom. Okay, just, just on the outside chance that anyone ever lacked some wisdom on something, in case that would come up, the Bible says right here, you should ask God because he loves to give generously to all without reprimand. He's not going to say, shame on you, you should have known everything that is in my mind. No, he wants to give and he wants to help us. And I think he's here with us and he wants to help us get through this. So what better place to start than with some questions that came in about the Bible itself? We got probably over a dozen questions or so on the Bible. Luke, why don't you kick it off, and, and we'll jump right in. Yeah, this is a good place to start, and uh, we were glad for the questions that came in. Um, so Todd asked, who chose what goes in the Bible and what doesn't go in the Bible? How do we know that certain books are inspired and others are not? Who made those parameters, and how do we know that they're the right ones? Uh, Bryce said, how could I explain the credibility of the Bible to someone who doesn't believe the Bible to be true? Uh, all of those are great questions. I'm going to start with this one from Kathleen. She says, why do we put so much stake in the New Testament over the old? And the short answer to that question is uh, because of Jesus. But let me say a few words about Jesus and where he fits into the story. I'm going to do it this way. All right, we got a slide here. Here's a list of a bunch of gods from antiquity, all right? Different people from different cultures would have called on the names of some of these gods and said, you know, that's, that's my god. 
I'm guessing a lot of us in this room don't know a lot about these stories or don't even care about the names of these gods and the people that worship them. Except for maybe one, and that's Yahweh. That's because we don't have to look very far to discover his story. It's told in the pages of what we know as the Old Testament. I think we have a list here. So the ones highlighted in yellow are the Old Testament. That's the story of Yahweh and his interaction with the world and with people. Now, it begins with creation. Yahweh claims to have created the world and created us. Now, lots of other gods made the same kinds of claims. But here's the thing about Yahweh. Uh, We experience the world to be a pretty broken place, right? Now, Yahweh's story accounts for that and understands that. And it says that Yahweh knows that this world is broken and cares about that and wants to do something about it. And more importantly, has the power to fix what was broken and put things back together again. So the story that unfolds is of Yahweh's restoration project, a renewal effort to fix the world and put things back together. And as that restoration and redemption story unfolds, different people and events appear. People like Moses shows up right here. He leads his people, uh, Yahweh's people, out of slavery in Egypt. Yahweh provides leaders as a gift to his people to uh, lead them and set them in the ways that Yahweh has designed. People like David, who was a king over God's people, shows up in the story right there. David's son Solomon was a world-renowned king and leader of God's people. Solomon built a temple for Yahweh as a place that uh, Yahweh could be encountered in a way that was real and his presence would dwell among his people. And then there's a whole bunch of prophets that Yahweh sends to speak his message and call people back to a full devotion and commitment. People like Jonah right here in the middle. And all of that, as that story unfolds, none of that would matter at all. None of us would care about any of that. It would all be lost to antiquity, just like the stories of all those other gods, if it weren't for Jesus, who shows up in the pages of the New Testament. And Jesus comes, and he says very distinctly, I come as the continuation of and the fulfillment of Yahweh's story. Not any other God's story, but Yahweh's story and what he's doing, his restoration work in the world. In fact, he says things like, just quite boldly, I and Yahweh, the Father, in the book of John, I think we have a slide, are one. When you look at me, you're seeing Yahweh, not any other God, not some vague idea of God, but Yahweh, whose story is told in the Old Testament. And so when we look at Jesus, we get a new perspective on some of the things that happened in the Old Testament. Creation. Uh, The writer of Colossians uh, looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, the Son, is the image of the invisible God, the, the, the ruler over all of creation. In fact, all things were created uh, through him and for him. When we look at Moses, the Hebrew writer looks at Moses and says this, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, which would have been crazy because Moses is like the hero of the Old Testament, like the George Washington figure. Uh, there's another part in the Bible where Jesus in uh, Matthew chapter 12, he's going on this, or excuse me, David first, Uh, they went ahead and they were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh. Again, Jesus fits within that story. And then Matthew 12, Jesus is very, trying to lock in his place, understand the priority that he fits in the story. He says, look, something greater than Solomon is here. Something greater than the temple is here. Someone greater than Jonah is here. Will you see that when you look at me? And again, none of that would matter a hill of beans if it wasn't for the next event in Jesus' story when he goes not only to the cross, but he rises from the dead. His resurrection serves as a a validation of the fact that Yahweh's restoration project that was started so long ago is in fact coming to pass. He's the only one who can say, you know, I was in that grave and now I am out again as proof of the fact that Yahweh who created the world and who is redeeming the world, his plans for the world are coming to pass. Over against any other God or any other person who says they got plans for the world, Yahweh, God, the one true God, has plans for the world that have been put in motion by Jesus. And so you could say that the Old Testament sets the stage on which the story of Jesus and the New Testament plays out. We're not going to hide from or ignore any part of the Bible, old or new. Uh, We're going to read it as fully as we can. But 
Jesus, the stories about him, and particularly his resurrection, have a certain priority of place. And we're going to focus there when we're trying to figure out what is God, the creator, up to, and where do we fit into that story. So that's kind of why, how the Old and New Testament relate to one another and the importance of Jesus in that story. And I love that Luke ended with the bit about the resurrection, because that's one of the things that sets Christianity apart, of course, uh, along with Judaism, is that this is a historical faith. Not a hysterical faith, a historical faith. Meaning that all this stuff Luke just talked about really happened in space and time. It's, it's historical in nature. These are events about real people with skin on, and that's why it's so important that, that we have this body of the story. When we say story, it doesn't mean it didn't happen. It means this is history, his story, and that's getting into a series of other questions we had about the credibility of the Bible. How do we know some of this? How can we trust the Scriptures and the verifiability of Scripture? Nathan, why don't you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I've heard it said that like the two most important questions to ask if you're investing in Christianity are, did the resurrection happen, and can we trust the Bible? And there's just so much evidence uh, for the reliability and trustworthiness of the Bible. There is what we call manuscript evidence. So if you look at ancient documents, you know, we have these, these manuscripts that we have pieces of some, we have entire versions of some, and just in antiquity, by far, the document that is most preserved for us is the New Testament of the Bible. There's thousands and thousands of them. And the number two, the second most, of the one that we have the most of is Homer's Iliad. And there's about 650, as opposed to like 5,000 plus manuscripts of the New Testament. There's internal evidence, just the consistency through time, across cultures, different types of literature that are in the Bible, different authors from different perspectives. Yet this consistency of message over time is just unbelievable. It's uh, it's. it's it, very, it makes it believable, actually. Um, and so then the, uh, the huma- just the humanity of it. One of the things that we love about the Bible, even though we believe that it's just, it's teaching us truth, we can count on it, is that it's written and put together through real, flawed human people, just like us. And that's the part of the miracle of the whole thing, how God did that. There's external evidence from archaeology. There's other documents and other uh, literary sources from around the same time. It all backs it up. There's mountains and mountains of evidence supporting the trustworthiness of the Bible and what I would just call the practical evidence that across centuries, across cultures and nations and languages, this is the all-time bestseller. It's the book that is most printed, most translated. It's the most stolen book. I don't know if you knew that about the Bible. It is the most quoted, the most defended, the most treasured book of all time. In the most hotel rooms. Far. It's in the most <laughs> hotel rooms. Um, so back to some of the questions Luke mentioned. So how did we get it? How did it get put together? Who chose what's in it, what's not? Who uh, were the ones that said, you know, how do, we, how do we know this book is inspired by God and this one is not? And so just to say that as the church was being born, people wanted to know that. That's a very, very good question. And so some leader, at different times, leaders in the early church got together at different, on different occasions across different traditions, across different cultures and regions, and they talked about all the big questions. They talked about the nature of Jesus. Is he fully human? Is he fully divine? Can he somehow be both? They talked about the Trinity and the Holy Spirit and the mystery of all that. They talked about human free will as opposed to God's sovereign will. They talked about church structure and leadership and discipline and what do we do with images and icons and all these things. And they talked about the scriptures. What are our holy texts? What's in, what's out? And we call this process canon, not like something we're going to shoot each other with, but canon, it just comes from a Greek word that means rule or measure, measuring stick. And the, the Bible, if you ever hear someone talk about the biblical canon, they're talking about what is authoritative and not, what's in and what's not. And early on, even before those gatherings, really in those meetings, this, this list just sort of arose. It was, uh, it was there even before the first ecumenical council or any of these meetings. It, it, so people did not so much decide what was in as they sort of just affirmed what had already shown itself to have authority. This, this list sort of existed. It sort of came to be on its own before it was ever given the name the Bible or grouped together and printed together, that kind of thing. So what gave these books, the, the, the books that Luke just showed us, these 66 books, what gave them that kind of authority? Well, 
The Old Testament is just the Hebrew Bible. It's just we just import it directly into our Bible. Our faith grew up out of that faith, as Luke just explained to us. And then, so we talk about, though, the 27 books of the New Testament. That, that's where we're asking this question. And so there's just four, there's these four criteria that's just really important to understand. I'm going to use some kind of churchy words here, but I, I hope to explain them a little bit. The first one is, did this, let's say we're examining a given document, a book, a letter, did it have apostolic origin? That means, did this thing go back to Jesus? Did it go right directly back to Jesus and the apostles, the people who were with him, or to their direct counterparts, their, the people that were with them? Did it go back to first-generation apostolic teaching? If it did, then maybe it, goes in the, maybe it belongs in the Scriptures. Did it have universal acceptance across Christian communities at that time? Again, where people would have known and been around, was it, was it accepted in all different churches all over the map? If so, let's keep talking. Did it have what we would call liturgical use, which just means did they actually read it in their weekly worship gatherings? When they gathered to do what we're doing right now, to celebrate the Lord's Supper, did they use these books in, in worship and in learning? And then the fourth one would be, was it a consistent message? Did, is there a straight line drawn to the truth of God? Is it saying something off the wall and different? Or is it saying the same things, the same types of things that all these other books were saying? And if, and only if a document met all four of those criteria, then it could be in. And if it didn't, it couldn't. And so you could just see how this is a really trustworthy process. It would have been basically impossible for some junk to make it in or for something that was really, truly authoritative in all these ways to somehow get left off the list. So I hope that gives you some comfort next time you hear on the news about the next sensational discovery of a lost gospel or a book that got left out that should have been in or whatever. That is probably mostly about selling magazines. And you can trust, I really, really think we can trust this process. Another way to say this is that in the early formative days of the Christian faith, and I made this graphic myself. You should be proud. Ah, well done. Nice. As the church was creating the Bible, the Bible was creating the church. It was a simultaneous process. They fed off of one another and they birthed one another. And the cool thing is that this process continues today in a way. Now, our canon is closed, right? We have a list and we're not adding to it. Whereas some religions uh, would say, we're continuing to add to our holy scriptures. We say, no, we have a closed canon. But there continues to be this mutually edifying pattern between the people of God and the, and the interpretation and the application of the Word of God, the Scriptures. So we read the Bible, we go to the Bible to know how we're supposed to do life and community together. That's where we get our instructions. And then we do that, and as we do that together, we learn this is the only place and the only way to in, learn how to interpret and translate and apply the Bible. And this cycle just goes on and on. It's a, it's a very holy and God-established thing. And so... We don't, you know, we don't worship this book. We don't. We, we believe it's, in some ways, it's sort of like an instruction manual for us. And, and a, be, a better metaphor is like, it's like a love letter from our, our loving God. And even, you know, maybe more than that, it's just, it's the story. It's the story of God in this world. And it's the jumping off point for us to keep living that story today. So we just like to, wanted to, throughout this series, throw some resources your way. There's so many more than we can mention. But one good book we'd like is called The Case for Christ by a guy named Lee Strobel. And he, was a, he didn't believe in Jesus. He was just an investigative journalist in Chicago. And he just sought to kind of once and for all use his skills as an investigator to disprove this whole thing, Christian thing, so he could move on. And along the way... He became a man of great faith, and he writes in such a just accessible way about all that. Um, also, we would recommend you just grab at some point, this is called a Bible handbook, and it's just such a great resource. It costs you like 25 bucks. It's well worth got, it. I got the new one. Oh, Luke's got the Luke's got it. This is the fourth edition one. It's the latest. Oh, okay. well. Actually, I, I so, looked up here, Nate, page, uh, what, 70, four-page article on the canonization of Scripture. So there you go. There it's you useful. Go. You at least it's pages. worth the money, 26 bucks just for that four-page article. Yeah. But, a lot of, actually, a lot of people ask questions that we didn't get to about dates and authors and just cultural context into which the Bible was written. Really helpful for that. Yeah, and there's pictures. It's awesome. Pictures. Um, yeah. So, Hopefully you didn't draw them, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
And then we also want to recommend, there's a guy named Scott McKnight, who's an author and a teacher and a scholar. We really trust him a lot. He, he is a brilliant guy, but he speaks in a very accessible way. And he has a great podcast that we just highly recommend called Kingdom Roots. So if, you, if you're into podcasts, he hits all kinds of different topics. Those are just a few resources that might help you uh, learn more about what the Bible is and how it came to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kingdom Roots is the name of the podcast. Uh, you want to check that out? So it's actually so awesome. You know, you hear, you hear people offhandedly uh, say, you know, oh, you know, the Bible, I don't know how we can trust it, or, you know, it probably is made, you know. They honestly have not looked into it. You look into this, and it is the most credible, verified document in the world by far. And it ties to history. So it's like started with eyewitnesses. And so that, that's one of the things that is so important for us to be able to just say, you know, we have this historically reliable text that we, that we have. And, and the cool part is, as Nathan was saying, it's not just historically reliable, it's personally reliable. You know, it's, 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 this, it's more than just words on a page, isn't it? You know, the, the scriptures talk about 2 Timothy uh, 3, where it describes itself. It says, you know, all scripture is God-breathed. means it comes from God. It's authoritative for us. And is so useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us and teaches us. That's what we want. How do I not go there and go here so that I can live the right kind of best kind of life? And I love Hebrews 4.12 that says the word of God is alive. And it's maybe old, but it's alive today. That's why when you've sat some time and you've read in your home or you've heard a sermon here or you've heard scripture and it just cut deep and just did surgery on your soul and it brought healing or it brought conviction. It's because it's alive and it's sharper and it exposes our inmost thoughts and desires. And I'm so grateful uh, for the word of God um, that way. And that's a great segue to one of our other uh, topics, our other questions. And uh, kind of the reason we have uh, Janet here, the the question we wanted to toss to her was, um, how does God put babies in mommy's bellies? I don't think I want to answer that one. (laughs) Seriously, go go ahead, Janet. No, so... (laughs) That was dirty. It's the only not parent up here. (laughs) So, uh, actually, uh, a question that we'll address instead uh, is, how do I know God's will for my life? Um, Janet did seem, she's on our staff here, seemed like a perfect one to answer it because she's been wrestling with career choices, just got married, had to wrestle through that. How do I know God's will for my life, Janet? Well, that's a big question, isn't it? I'm sure we've all wondered that at different points in our life. And for me, it was something that I pursued so far that I actually missed God's will completely. A few years ago, I was about to graduate college, and I knew as soon as I was done, I wanted to move to China. I had spent a year there. It was awesome. It was great. I was going back. But then I hit a complication. His name is Michael. (laughs) So Michael and I, oh, he's so cute, we were dating, and when we started dating, I said to him, hey, this is great and all, I love what we have going on, but know that at at some point, you need to figure out if you're moving to China with me or not. That's what every guy wants to hear as soon as he gets a girlfriend, right? (laughs) Well, that didn't go over so well. It put a lot of stress on our relationship, and the next thing I know, our relationship is consumed by these questions. What is God's will for Michael's life? Is it God's will for us to keep dating, to get married? Is Michael going to move to China too? Because if that's his will, then we need to get on this marriage thing so that we can move to China together. And it just consumed us more and more, and it became a worry and a stressor. And all we were doing is sitting around just stressing out over what is God's will for Michael and for me and for this whole thing that we're trying to figure out right now. And then it hit me. We were never meant to worry about what God's will is for us. Now that sounds a little weird, doesn't it? We're all thinking, well, what is God's will? I, I have to know, so I have to worry about it, right? Well, worrying actually goes directly against God's will for all of us. Jesus even explicitly said, do not worry about your life. So if we're not going to worry, then we've got to figure out what we're going to do so we're not worrying about it, right? Well, Jesus makes it pretty clear, and he says to his disciples, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And many will say to me on that day, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? And didn't we drive out demons and perform many miracles? And I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. I never knew you. Wow. That passage is so 
strong when you think about it. I mean, they were doing everything you would possibly want to do, right? They're casting out demons. I don't know about you. I've never even done that. Uh, they're performing miracles and all these great things. And God says, sorry, I don't know you. And that's it right there. The will of God is to know God. God doesn't want you to come to him with this list of accomplishments, like look at all the great things I've done. He wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to know you. He wants you to know him, his love, his power, his sacrifice. He wants that relationship with you. And then there's a second part to God's will that later Jesus tells his disciples as he's finishing his work on earth. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you. So his final instructions were, make me known. The disciples knew Jesus so well, they spent all this time with him, and now he's saying, hey, go out, let everyone know me, let everyone have a relationship with me. So the will of God is to know God and make him known. That's it. It's not this treasure that we're looking for, like, where's the buried treasure? And if I don't find it, oh my gosh, I'm just missing out completely. It's this relationship. And God is saying, know me, let me into your life, let me be your father, be my child. And then take it a step further and let other people know me in that way too. I found that a lot of people think that the will of God is like this tightrope, you know, we're over here on the edge, walking along. Mm -hmm. Oh, if I just make one wrong step, I'm going to fall down and miss it completely. And God's saying, no, it's not this tightrope. We can widen that a little bit. Jesus talks about how it's a path, and it's a narrow path. There are things that fall outside of God's will. Sin isn't part of God's will, but it is a path. There's room on that. And for me, with Michael, we're married now, so that worked out somehow. And for us, part of what freed us up to do that was when we realized that we could let go of that tightrope, thinking that it had to be China. It opened up to, well, you know, we could do ministry in the U.S. We could do ministry in Brazil or any country. God wouldn't be like, oh, you went to the wrong place. Sorry, your ministry is not going to work out so well there. And we've seen that together we've been walking along, knowing God and making him known. It looks different in our lives. We're not going to have the same walk. You know, Michael, he's an engineer. He goes to work every day and uh, uses his engineer skill set. I don't even know what engineers do. That's not my skill set. I come to church and I work here. And it's a very different way of walking in Christ, uh, knowing him and making him known. And each of you, we are all made creatively and gifted differently. And with that, it's going to look different for all of us as we know God and make him known. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're sitting here like, okay, I still have this giant decision to make, so this isn't really helping me. What do I do about this job change I'm looking at or this decision about my health? that I need to make? Or what about this relationship? What do I do with this person? God needs to make that clear to me. Well, Michael and I actually have a pretty big decision coming up. We're visiting a country in West Africa called Burkina Faso. Uh, we're going there this Thursday, actually, to see if we are to be long-term missionaries there. So that's kind of honest right now, is we're going to hope that God gives us some clarity through this trip, that we can make a decision. But for any of us who are looking at decisions like this, trying to figure out how do I move forward, there are a few things we can do. We all have to pray. And pray, you know, you're just knowing God. You're continuing to know him through that, letting him know you. Read the Bible. We just talked about how important the Bible is. Let's open it and see what God said. And if there's something in there that convicts you as you make this decision. And talk to other people. I mean, that's part of why we're sitting up here in a group. See what other people have to say. People who love you and love God. They might have some insight and wisdom that they've seen. And then the last one, which I think is kind of important, is to take your time. Do not rush. That's a hard one, I think, when we have decisions that are pushing on us. That's part of why it's so important not to worry. You know, it's 2017 right now, and it was 2014 when I wanted to leave the country. So I've been sitting around here a bit, but the extra time has really done a lot for us. We've gotten to see God work in ways that we didn't expect to. And so all of us making these decisions, we pray, we read the Bible, we talk to people, we sit back and let God do his thing as we don't rush, and we hope that a clear answer will just emerge and we'll know what to do, we'll see the writing on the wall. And that can happen. It's great when it does. But a lot of times it doesn't. I know we could do all these things, and through that you have to be ready to know that God might not give you clarity. An answer might not emerge. And through that, your options are options. 
choices. God sometimes is saying, take a step in a direction, and as long as it's not sinful, as long as it is on that path, then you're fine. Just take a step in faith, knowing that he can work through any choice you make. If you make the wrong choice, or you later see all these things that you didn't like about it, God's still bigger than that. So we'll do all of those things as we know that the purpose of all of us, God's will for each person here, is to know God and make him known. Hey, really well said, Janet. Uh, Yeah. So here's a book that says in like uh, 231 pages what Janet just said in a few minutes. Um, I read it, I think, when I was about your age, and it just had, you talked about the tightrope to the path and kind of that freeing experience. I read this and just it, it created a freeing experience as I'm trying to figure out where is God calling me, and it says some of the similar kind of things there. So kind of popular, popular level book if you're uh, interested. What's it called? Seizing Your Divine Moment. Um, did you do the cover? No, you didn't do no, the cover. No. <clears throat> By Erwin McManus and Luke, I think we're going to put all these resource ideas mm-hmm. on uh, the website or someplace. Go snoop around, you'll find it. And uh, the list will keep growing in the coming weeks. Um, so, yeah, as we, as we just try to tackle things in just a brief little moment, uh, it might be we'll encourage you to do some more reading and researching on a number of different topics. So we have... Um, just enough time to scratch the surface on a huge, huge and important issue because we got a lot of questions about um, homosexuality. We got a ton of questions. Um, What does the Bible actually say about being gay? Um, Are people born that way? How should I feel about myself if I have same-sex attraction? Um, You know, should I go to my my friend's wedding who's same-sex wedding or... Are same-sex attracted or gays, transgender people welcome at mountain? So many questions. And I, I mean, I, I can just feel it, uh, the weight of this um, on so many of us, on me trying to voice some of the, in this tender arena right now, and, and all of us having so much at stake about um, what we believe and, and people we love so dearly. Um, so again, let's be very gentle and try to uh, humble ourselves and say we're going to try to say a couple things that we think uh, are, are, are wise and good to say in the short amount of time that we have. And uh, I will remind you that uh, a few months back in a series called Disillusioned in the spring of 2000, this last year, right, we did a, a full-length message on this, which we won't be able to do now, but uh, we did try to talk about some things there. One of the first things that's always so important kind of wherever, because we're all kind of coming at this from different points of view and different angles and different life experiences. Wherever you're coming to this from, just remember this. We're talking here not about an issue to be discussed and decided. We're talking about people. Okay, to be loved. That is a fundamentally Christian way to look at this. This is not an issue. We're, we're, We're interested in talking in the ways that God would about his creation, about people uh, to be loved. It's so easy to demonize people that are different than us or we don't understand. We've seen it all, all over the place uh, on the political aisle. We, you know, if, if someone disagrees with me, we just demonize them. They're just totally other and different and, and uh, bad and evil. And, the, and uh, you know, the church has done some demonizing of people you know, in, in the past, uh, divorced people or addicts or gays. And sometimes people do it right back at Christians, those terrible Christians. They're this way, or they, if they disagree with Christianity and some of the convictions, they um, you have all kinds of names. And so, so if you're human, we can rest assured here, if you're human, God loves you. That's where we start. It's amazing how much clarity that brings when we start there. Now, what does then the Bible you know, say about um, a homosexual behavior? Does it talk about it at all? Um, well, yes, it does. A lot of people are surprised to discover uh, that there are really only about six passages, maybe five really, that talk about this in the Bible. Um, and there's actually a lot of debate, um, I would say a growing debate, about how many of them apply to um, monogamous, same-sex, consensual, uh, loving gay relationships today. Not everyone agrees on all these things I'm about to say. But let's kind of just quickly survey. Uh, a lot of people will talk about... Um, uh, Genesis chapter 19. This is a story where some men of the city of Sodom come banging on the door of a guy named Lot, and they want to ga- basically gang rape his 
his guests who happen to be angels. And a lot of people link that passage to homosexuality, and it's been historically popular to do that. The only, it really isn't about that. And none of the other places in the Bible that actually refer to that passage uh, ever refer to the homosexuality issue as the big deal there. It's an important passage. It's just not one that really speaks to this issue. It doesn't shed a lot of light for us. Uh, Leviticus 18 and 20 are often pointed to, and they are different. Here we find a, a really clear, uh, kind of unambiguous prohibition of same-sex sex of any kind. doesn't seem like there's a lot of wiggle room there uh, about, about kind of avoiding that, that conclusion. Um, now, someone might say, uh, and this is a legitimate question, wait a second, this is Old Testament you're talking about here. This is like when Luke was talking about all that old stuff. Aren't some of the things in those verses really outdated? Aren't they about kind of a culture that doesn't exist anymore? Is that even the same kind of thing we mean when we say homosexuality today? And doesn't Jesus come along and kind of replace a lot of uh, the Old Testament laws and so forth? These are all really important questions, and and there's not a sort of one-word answer to those because you have to kind of look at it a little more carefully. And that's one reason why people don't stick with this sometimes is that you have to to wrestle with things and, and really look. Um, so, yes, some things in Leviticus, like the sacrificial system or like certain dietary laws and so forth, um, are apparently set aside or kind of done away with by words of Jesus and other New Testament teaching. Um, the Bible says the sacrificial system that was so important in the book of Leviticus is now basically done away with because of Jesus. You know, it says the dietary laws that were a big part of identifying as God's people. It kind of says, no, you know, you can have a ham sandwich now and it's good. It's okay. You, don't, you can have your shellfish and all that kind of stuff too. So, um, but the vast majority of the, the kinds of uh, prescriptions and uh, ways that God is trying to paint a picture for his best desires for our best lives in those passages, the vast majority of those things are, are what you would have to call timeless moral principles. And especially the ones that have to do with sexuality, and it turns out there's a lot of them, um, these are the ones that I think everyone pretty much universally would agree, oh, those are still really important, especially for Christian people. Incest, adultery, turns out it's still, it's not been set aside. It's still not okay for us to, to go and have sex with our, our neighbor's spouse and so forth. And there's other things in that list that none of us would probably want to see, you know, altered, uh, child sacrifice, bestiality, lying and stealing and so forth. So vast majority of those things are still in place. Um, all the ones that have to do with sexual ethics are, are, are still in place. All the other ones that have to do with sexual ethics. And then many of them are repeated again and upheld in the New Testament, either by Jesus or uh, other New Testament writers. And so uh, for these reasons, um, this passage is hard to wave away, and it's pretty unambiguous that this was a clear statement that this is outside of God's best intentions. Some will say, uh, you know, is it true that Jesus actually never talked about homosexuality? And And the answer is, that's correct. He never once mentioned it. Um, so that, you know, I think we have to be careful about making too much or too little of that. There's lots of things Jesus didn't talk about, you know, he didn't talk about rape or anything like that either, but it, it would be dangerous to sort of draw too many conclusions from silence on either side of this. Um, what we do know is that he was a good Jew who stood in the faithful tradition of what all Jews for 500 years before him and 500 years after him accepted, which was a pretty clearly established sexual ethic, which did not uh, allow for same-sex um, involvement. So that's kind of a difficult word. We have to kind of put it there as a piece of evidence, and then we can move on to some other New Testament passages. Um, Romans chapter 1 is, is probably the one that most people would point to as, a, as an example. Um, uh, basically, Romans chapter 1 is saying that God created us, and he intends us to flourish and thrive. And it does say in this passage that uh, same-sex intimacy is not the way to do that and that it is one of the ways that humans have um, been given over to to rebel against God's best intentions for the way he designed life to happen. So um, the problem with Romans chapter 1 is that a lot of people kind of read that far at the beginning of chapter 1 and sort of stop and and draw their conclusion that the point of Romans chapter 1 is to condemn, you know, homosexuality or homosexual people or something like that. And that is, in fact, to pretty much miss the point 
of what Romans 1, 2, and 3 is all about. The point of Romans 1 is not to condemn gay people. The point of Romans 1, honestly, is to make sure we all understand that we're all condemned. That's the whole point. And it's a point that is sometimes, I'll just say it, missed by homophobic Christians who use this passage as a club to beat over someone's head so they can convince them of their view on homosexuality. This passage is a way of reminding, and it says actually just before this, that any kind of sexual impurity is one of the other ways that we can alienate ourselves from God. And that includes straight people, it includes gay people, it includes any kind, and actually lists a whole long list. And then there's another part that says, and anyone who's ever committed any kind of this wickedness or evil, we've got this beautiful list here, okay? So, so here's, here's what it says. If anyone has ever done any of these things, we're on the list of being condemned in God's ju- just... Uh, so we'll just kind of take a moment there to... to uh, has anyone ever been greedy for a moment? If you ever had a moment of envy or murder, or Jesus says, by the way, murder now counts. If you've wanted to kill someone, you're, you got that one too. Uh, you, ever, you ever stir up trouble? You ever been less than fully honest for a moment in your life? Have you ever just been up to no good and thought evil thoughts about someone? Have you ever spread something that wasn't true or, or said something that you shouldn't have? Have you ever just been less than faithful to God or full of pride or arrogant or disobey our parents or those who didn't demonstrate full faith? You know, so in other words, Paul could not work any harder here to simply say, I don't care who you are. Okay, I don't care who you are. You need to get this point. Uh, all of us rebel against God's intentions for our life. And until we see that as the main point of this passage, we're going to use it in a way that kind of misses the main point. Paul's trying to say, all of us are beggars looking for bread. And if you find bread, oh, we must share it with other beggars looking for bread. And that's where the whole book of Romans is about, to say all are sinners, but thank God that... Everything we are, everything we've done, all the ways we've disappointed God, these and so many others, can be put into a coffin and nailed tight because of what Jesus has done on the cross. And in light of these mercies, man, we all want to give our bodies to God just full on and say, everything about me is yours. That's the point of Romans. So be careful about how we use even a passage like that. So when you look at what the Bible says, does the Bible uh, talk about homosexual behavior? It does. And uh, while there is some debate uh, among different quarters, I, I myself find it very difficult to come to the conclusion that, that uh, you could find an endorsement in the Bible for same-sex relationships of any kind um, with, with God, as God's best plan for our lives moving forward. Now that, that's a hard word for a lot of people. And it's difficult because... Um, you know, culture is moving and shifting on this. And I think one of the people it's most difficult for is sometimes those of us who are most concerned for faithfulness in God's name. And um, it, I, I want to I share just a reminder for all of us now about some of the ways we need to kind of come under the spirit of Jesus. As we go to this Bible we've talked about, how do we come under the spirit of Jesus? In other words, how do we think, act, feel, and behave like Jesus on this issue? Whether I am a person who has same-sex attraction, or whether someone I love does, or whether I'm not and I don't know how to deal with those people. How do we come under the spirit of Jesus? And I think of how he acted around people that everyone tended to think was um, bad. Jesus had a lot of exposure to the people that everyone thought were bad. So you can start thinking now, who do you think is bad? Okay, Who is that person for you? And it's probably different for all of us. For some of us, it might be those gays. For some of us, it might be those judgmental Christians. I don't know, but you insert it. And then we, this is where we meet a guy like Matthew. Matthew chapter 9 says this. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said. To him. So Matthew got up and he followed him. It's profound. Later, Matthew actually invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, Healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. And then he added, Now go and learn the meaning of the scripture. 
which says, I, I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I've come to call those not who think they're righteous, but those who know they're sinners. The best place to be is a person who says, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus didn't come to get us to stop doing little sins. He came to rescue us from our sin. And that's what I think he's trying to get at here. Now, just to put it in context, we sometimes miss the shock waves of how dramatic this would have been what happened here with Matthew, okay? Because we don't think of tax collectors as all that bad. Probably none of us really love the IRS agent that comes knocking, but it was so much different in those days. These were Jewish sellouts to the oppressive Roman government that had come in to abuse the Jewish faith and to disrespect their ways and their God. And Matthew was one of those guys who gave himself over to the evil empire. He sold out. He, he gave himself up to, to, the, to the dark side and he was committing religious treason and unfaithfulness by being a tax collector, you see. That, that's why they, they, uh, they thought that these um, tax collectors, they, they always lived these immoral lives, they thought, and, and uh, they were worse in the Jewish mind than murderers. They were worse than dung collectors. You heard me correctly. Worse than poop scoopers. Okay, that was pretty bad in that culture. Past the point of repentance. If God's grace had a leash, it extended almost up to tax collectors, but not that far. So again, who is that for you? When you think of the tax collectors, the people that you really have a hard time with, that creep you out, who is that for you? And when, they, when that person, you know, is it a pimp? Is it a, is it a, is it a, a prostitute, a drug dealer, a porn studio? Who is it? When they walk up to you, what do you want to say to them? And here's what Jesus said to Matthew. Come. Follow me. That's what Jesus said. Come and follow me. We've just got to let Jesus get with people. And leave Jesus to do what only Jesus can do, to love and to embrace and to hold and to bring. That's what all of us need. That's what the Romans passage is about. It's what this is about. We've got to let Jesus get with people. Good things happen when Jesus gets with people. And Jesus, Jesus just said, come and follow me. And those are the words that this church and every church needs to be able to say to anyone, I don't care who you are, come, Jesus says, follow me. All of us with our pet sins that we don't think are as bad as the next guys, all of us are hearing Jesus say, come and follow me. The one thing that everybody in Jesus' day knew is that Jesus loved them. Friends, not every gay person thinks that Jesus loves them today. And part of that is because of the way that Christians have represented Jesus. So maybe we've got a little work to do on this. It's to just build relationships. By the way, Matthew invited Jesus over for a party. I, I love that. This has to be a safe place to follow Jesus for everyone. And anyone. Holy Spirit's job to convict. God's job to judge. Our job is simple. Love. Where are you going to stand? Where are you going to stand? I'm going to stand with Jesus on love. That's where you should stand. Truth and love aren't, you don't have to choose. Jesus embraced them both. And, affirm, and, 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 and accepting someone and loving them isn't the same as accepting everything about anyone's behavior. That was the last thing on Jesus' mind. Do you think he wanted Matthew to stop extorting people and robbing? I bet he did. Could he have waved a bunch of scriptures at him to say stop stealing and robbing? Of course he did. He didn't, though. He led with love. And look what happened. When people connect with Jesus, that's the mission. Our mission of this church is to make disciples, more and better disciples. I, we've said it a hundred ways. You know, it doesn't matter who you are. That's the same mission. So we're all in the same boat here, guys. God is love and everyone is loved. Everyone is welcome because of that. That's why Jesus came. Get people connected. And we're all broken. Okay? And our sexuality, every one of us, that's part of what's broken. None of us gets to say, well... You know, that part of me is, is untouchable. You can't, you can't go there, God. You know, we can't say, Jesus, I want you in my life. Except for my finances. Except for my friendships. Except for my Friday nights. 
except for my personality, except for my tongue. No, it's just like, Jesus, if you're going to be my Lord, I'm going to surrender everything to you, even the parts of me that maybe I don't want you messing with. And so on the positive side, what the Scriptures hold out to us is not a, a sin list of things that are no-nos that we're not supposed to do. What the Bible holds out to us is a beautiful invitation from Jesus who loves us so much. And the word that is sometimes used to describe how sexuality fits into this picture is the word chastity. Chastity. It's simply a way of saying all of us are called to find God-honoring expressions of our sexuality in God-intended design. So if you're single, if you're married, if you're gay, we all have to sort of be willing to come under that, that definition of, of chastity. And the biblical bounds of chastity limit sexual behavior to heterosexual marriage. It's, it's, where we find, it's what we find in the Scriptures. But all of us, then, are held to this standard of God honoring. And the truth is none, I'll say it again, none of us live up to it. Which is why we're all on a journey together, and that's what the church is. It's broken people, loved by Jesus, invited on a journey together to say, hear Jesus say to us, man, I love you so much just the way you are. Will you come? Matthew, will you come? Bob, will you come? Sue, will you come and follow me? And guess what? If you follow Jesus, he's going to lead you someplace. He loves us just the way we are. He does love us too much to leave us that way. So everyone here is on a journey. Everyone's loved. No one's indulged. We're all challenged on the upward call. And that's the kind of church we are. So if I'm gay, am I welcome in this church? Yep. Yes. I mean, huh? Yes. Good grief. If not, then I got to go too. That's, that's who Jesus is. It's not, it's not your church. It's not my church. We don't even get to make the rules. We don't even get to stand at the door and, and screen people. Jesus, thank God, loves me, a sinner. And he has provided a relationship with me that is my best and only life, now and for eternity. That's our mission. Hold it out. It's who we are. So I don't care who you are. God loves you. God wants a relationship with you. And there is nothing that puts us outside the reach and the grace and the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So, let's stand up. Let me ask you to, um, let me ask you to uh, do something that will make a lot of you really uncomfortable as if we weren't already really uncomfortable. <laughs> I want you to grab someone appropriately. I know her well enough I can do this. Ask me if we just hold hands. If you want to touch someone, you can touch someone. Because we're going to let the love of Jesus just say, you know what? You're a creature of God, and you're screwed up. <laughs> That's good. Me too. And what we have in common is that Jesus loves us and welcomes us to this place. So Jesus, will you be with us now in this place, and will you give us the ability to look like you, to go after people who need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ for all people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. See you next week. Don't miss it.